if, if you wouldn't mind shutting that back uh, wood door, thank you so much. Um, we just got through Second uh, John, and what we do is we go, obviously you know this, if you've been here for any extended period of time, we go through books of the Bible, different scriptures in, in, uh, in sequence, and the plan was to go from 2 John into 3 John, Jude, and then Revelation. And let me just say a word. I mentioned this to people at the, the merge on Wednesday night, and many of you might not have been here. But there is a, there's a sense in which I think there's a, there's, a, there's a view out there that thinks that if we get into the book of Revelation, and not just in this church, by the way, but just in, in America in general, if we get into the book of, of Revelation, it's going to be this, this one exciting uh, sermon after another where we break out the charts and we, we show exactly where we are at in the end times and we point out uh, all sorts of different uh, prophetic keys and that kind of thing. We're all sitting on the edge of our seat just wondering what each symbol means and what each strange animal means and we're going through this and with bated breath. And there are people who teach Revelation like that, who teach Revelation as, as if it were just this unfolding book of, of novelty and gimmicks and never-ending thrillers. The truth is, the book of Revelation is truly thrilling. And it is truly exciting but not in the way that many people might perceive thrilling and exciting. And so instead of just continuing, because we've been looking for a number of weeks, even months, at Second John, and we talked a lot about false teaching, and especially as we would have gotten into the book of Jude, we would have found more and more teaching about false teaching, and it would have been rich stuff. There was a sense that as I began to pray and think about what we need to talk about in this church for the next number of months, uh, extended period of time, that we need to, instead of just continuing in our journey, Third uh, John, Jude, and then Revelation, that really we need to get back to the, to the Gospels. Now, if you've been here for a long time, we've been here over seven years now, when we first started, we began by preaching through the Gospel of John. But 98% of the people who are here never heard one sermon from the Gospel of John. And so what we're going to do, instead of going back to John and just retracing our steps through John, we're going to begin to travel now through the Gospel of Mark. And eventually, maybe years down the road, I don't know if the Lord opens the opportunity to preach through the book of Revelation. That's where we'll head. But there's some wonderful, wonderful, rich material that I think the Lord would want us to understand and apply from the Gospel of Mark. Now, in preparation for today, and instead of just diving right into Mark, we need to have some kind of a backdrop of the feeling of Israel at the time when Jesus Christ appeared on the scene. And it was a period of great darkness. The nation of Israel was in confusion. They were oppressed by the Roman Empire. 
And spiritually, many of them were religious, but for a large portion of national Israel, they were apostate. That is, they did all the rituals, they went to temple, and they knew all of the traditions, and they read their Bibles, but many, many of them were following in the train of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and other religious groups who were not really concerned with true, genuine belief, but more with religion. And Israel found themselves in a period of great spiritual darkness. Now, spiritual darkness doesn't necessarily look like what we might think spiritual darkness looks like. Spiritual darkness does not mean that everyone walks around depressed. Everyone has a long look on their face. Everyone's walking throughout the nation of Israel just sad and forlorn. That's not what we mean when we're talking about spiritual darkness. What we're talking about when we're talking about spiritual darkness is we are talking about rank unbelief. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about a group of people who have a sense of what religion is about. They know that God is there, but instead of genuinely being repentant, and broken over their lifestyle before the Lord, there's simply an indifference, just an indifference, an indifference toward the true God. And there are two groups of people who respond to this darkness in completely different ways. Unbelievers, because they're blind and do not see the spiritual truth, respond to darkness as if, so what? We have our religion. We've got some money in the bank. We're making it. We're doing okay. We believe in the Ten Commandments. We believe in different things that are found in the Bible. We're pretty good people. Everything seems okay. Everything's not perfect. But life is going on okay. Life seems, to be, life seems to be going on in a, in a way that seems acceptable. And that's how an unbelieving group responds to spiritual darkness. Just indifferent. And if there was anything that we see when we look out over our nation, it is spiritual darkness. It is not that everyone is depressed and everyone's upset in America. It's the fact that we have rank unbelief. People are okay. They say, hey, we believe in God. We're good people. You know, we go to church every now and then. We, we even give a little bit of money to different charities. And life is, life's okay. And that is a picture of, of spiritual darkness. People just living in indifference, even religious indifference. 
There are many, many people who think in Israel and also in America, in ancient Israel and in America, we're fine. Things aren't the way that we wish they would be. I mean, they're not perfect. We've got our problems. We turn on the news. We see all sorts of things we're scared to death over. But it's not really worth changing anything in our own personal life. After all, we're doing, we're doing okay. The second group is a small group. It's not the majority. But it's a group of people who really love God. They recognize that religion is not where it's at. They recognize that you can go to church every day. You can consider yourself to be a sincerely good person and sincere in your religious beliefs and still not be right with God. And this group of people looks out over the spiritual landscape and says, there's a problem. There's a problem. How is it that so many people are okay without a vibrant, thriving relationship with God Almighty? They look at this situation and they have tears in their eyes as they think about the spiritual state of their surrounding communities. And they say, even though everyone else is saying things are going on pretty good, something is drastically wrong. Something's wrong. And other people are going, it's okay, calm down, don't take it so serious. Listen, you don't want to be a fanatic. You don't want to get too serious about all of this religious stuff. Just a little dose is okay. Just a little bit of religion, just get a little bit of religion in you, and that's okay. Just as long as you're being decent, as long as you're trying to be kind, as long as you're trying to be good, that's good enough. And the believing remnant, this small group of people says, come Lord Jesus, there's a, there's a problem here. And Lord, you need to awaken us from this state of spiritual darkness. The nation of Israel had a long history of spiritual darkness. They were united under King Saul, a united kingdom. One kingdom, all 12 tribes following under King Saul. They were a united kingdom under King David. The nation of Israel remained united. All 12 tribes under King David remained together following King David, some of them following after God. And they remained united under his son, King Solomon. But after Solomon, there was a split in the nation. And 10 of the tribes said, 
we're not going to be united anymore. And they are known as the Northern Ten Tribes, or collectively as Israel. And they set up a king who was not in the Davidic line, who did not come from King David. They set up a man named Jeroboam. And they said, Jeroboam, you're going to be our king. You're going to reign over us. And the southern kingdom, which comprised of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, said, no, we're not going to go with the northern ten tribes. But we're going to stick together, Judah and Benjamin, and we're going to set up Rehoboam. So you had Jeroboam in the north, and you had Rehoboam in the south, the king over these two uh, tribes in the south. And from that point on, the nation of Israel would be split. Instead of being a united whole, as they had been under King Saul, under King David, under King Solomon, they were now a divided nation. And tragically, the northern tribes began instantly to say, you know what, the temple's in the south, we don't have a temple in the south, we're not going to the south anymore, so we're going to set up our own shrines our own places of worship, and that's exactly what they did. Instead of traveling south like they should have, going to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, Jeroboam said, we're going to set up our own places of worship. Immediately, they plunged into spiritual darkness. No longer following the God of Israel, no longer having a heart that wholeheartedly followed after him, they said, we're going to follow our own gods. And they were warned time and time and time and time and time again, listen, if you will reject the Lord, he will reject you. If you want to play religious, if all you want to do is give in to the American dream or the Israeli dream, God is very clear, if you reject me, he says, I will reject you. That's the message. And God pleaded with the ten northern tribes over and over and over again, worship me. They wouldn't. And so in 722 B.C., this is literal history. The empire of Assyria swoops in and takes the ten northern tribes, many of the people from the ten northern tribes, takes them captive, makes them exiles, takes them back to their own land. And there we have it, the northern ten tribes, on the run, some of them remain, only the poor remain, only the, the, the non-influential remain. But Assyria says, I'm taking the influential, the leaders, and they take these ten tribes and they scatter them across the Assyrian Empire. And now all that's left are the two southern tribes, collectively known as Judah. And now God begins to warn them. As happened with your brothers in the north, so will happen to you. 
If you decide, just like they did, not to worship me, not to follow after me, but to follow after their own gods, God promises that they also will be taken captive. And Assyria meddled with the southern kingdom, although no, never completely overtaking them. 722, Assyria had taken over the northern kingdom, and in 586 B.C., 140 years later, roughly, Babylon, the empire of Babylon, who is now in charge, sweeps in and takes the southern kingdom of Judah captive because they would not listen to their God. And we start this morning by looking at the book of Isaiah because Isaiah is preaching during this time when Assyria had come in and had taken the northern ten tribes captive. He had seen that, and now the book of Isaiah is predominantly looking at the southern kingdom, saying, look at what happened to your brothers in the north. Turn to God, and he'll have mercy upon you. And the book of Isaiah is centered around warning and teaching the two southern tribes to follow after God. And so instead of just jumping into Mark, we want to look at Isaiah. So why don't you open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. Uh, Isaiah is preaching and teaching. And he comes in verse 16, and the Lord is speaking to him. And we see their devotion in the midst of this darkness. And God comes to them and says this, in the midst of this darkness, verse 16, he says, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. says, this prophecy that I've been given to you, seal it up. Bind it up. The people are not listening. Some commentators say that Isaiah here at this point kind of stepped back from public ministry. I'm not convinced that that is what is going on. What he's saying is this, preserve the word of God as precious Isaiah. This word that has been given to you, even though all sorts of things are swirling about you, all sorts of gods are being worshipped, all sorts of different prophecies are being given. He says, Isaiah, this is the true and living word of God, and he is saying, preserve it. Bind it up, physically seal it up. Make sure that it's safe. Stick to it, is what he's saying. In the midst of all this darkness that is taking place, make sure, Isaiah, that you and your disciples don't get away from the word because it is sure and it is true. And he's saying be faithful. In the midst of spiritual darkness, don't, Isaiah, don't tamper with this word. For it is what is right 
And even though everyone else around you is saying, that word of God, well, that's not really true, maybe partially true in some of its parts, you know, like the part that God is love, that's okay. But he's saying, stick to it. And there was only a small group of people that said, in the midst of darkness, we're going to be faithful. We're going to preserve the word. We're going to seal it up. We're going to recognize that this is the only thing that's sure, that this is the only thing that we can hold on to. There's nothing else that we can hold on to. What are, what are we going to hold on to? The nightly news? What we see blogged on on the internet? What our neighbors are telling us? What, 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 our, what our governmental leaders are telling us? What is sure in this life? And it's so interesting that so many people are saying, this is sure, this is the way that we should walk. And God is coming to Isaiah and he's saying, Isaiah, bind this up, seal it up, put it away, guard it, put it next to your heart, don't walk away from it. And the question to us this morning is this, is that what we're doing? Is the word of God something that we're sealing up? Or are we beginning to listen to what others are saying? Are we beginning to hear the darkness and say, that sounds rather compelling. You know, as soon as we get out of this church, we see a bunch of people. They seem like good and decent people. Isn't that all that really matters? Aren't we all just worshiping at the end of the day? Aren't we just really worshiping the same God? No. No, we're not. And so he says, bind it up. Be devoted to it. Let this master you. Let this guard you. If you're going to go down alone, go down with the word. All else is going to fail. Do you know how many people have died in history without seeing their hope on this earth fulfilled? God is saying, Isaiah, bind this up, seal it up. And yet tradition tells us that Isaiah was one of the prophets who actually got sawn in two. See, this isn't like follow the word, bind it up, seal it up, guard it, make it precious, treasure the word, as, as, long as, as long as you can make it. But when things get really hard and the darkness gets overwhelming and the pressure comes in too much, then go ahead and just move it out of the way. Don't listen to it anymore. No. This is go all the way to the very end with this word clutched in your hands. Don't let it go. Reminds me of 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you want to flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2. Verse 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 2. And what you have heard from me, that is Paul telling Timothy, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men 
who will be able to teach others also. He says, take this word that you've been entrusted with and pass it off to those who love the word as much as you who are going to guard it and seal it up and bind it up and protect it. Hand this word that you love off to other men who also love it as much as you love it. This is exactly what Isaiah is saying. If you go back to your text in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 16, he says, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among who? Among my disciples. There's always a group. There's always a group of faithful people who are willing to obey and cling to the word of God because they've been so changed and so moved in their heart by the Lord Jesus Christ that the word of God is all that they have and they realize it. And so it's faithful men who give this word off to other faithful men who will guard it and guard its teaching, who will then hand it off to other faithful men and faithful women. In the midst of the darkness, in verse 17, he says this, and continues to persevere. He says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Regardless of what's going on all around me, all the darkness that's going on, Isaiah is saying this, this group of him and his disciples, he says, whether we see it or not, we know that we've encountered God, we know that we have his word, and we're going to continue to hope in him. We're going to continue to wait. And even if he doesn't show up when we want him to, even if he doesn't show up on the exact moment we think he should, we're going to continue to wait for him and wait for him and wait for him and wait for him. In fact, when the scripture says here that he and his disciples will hope in the Lord, in the Hebrew, it actually means to wait for the Lord in tension. And the picture, the, the word literally means to be in tension like a rope that is being pulled. And Isaiah is saying, in the midst of this tension, while I'm feeling the tension, while I see the spiritual darkness, and many other people don't seem to see the spiritual darkness at all, they're reveling in it, they love it. And he's being torn. And it reminds you of someone else who was stretched and torn over the darkness. And he's saying, in the midst of this tension, instead of giving up, I'm going to hope in the Lord. In the midst of when it gets really, 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 really tough, I'm going to hope in him. I'm going to continue. Because his strength is in me. And even though I'm being pulled apart, he says, yet I will hope in the Lord. This is what true believing Israel did. It doesn't matter. There's no breaking point. Just like when we say in marriage, till death do us part, it's the same with a Christian and his Lord. Till death do I part with this world.
till death, till death. And the Lord brings in stretching and he pulls us as it were a rope and believers oftentimes feel like they're going to break, that they're going to snap under the pressure. And God says, continue to hope. Continue to, to wait in the midst of the darkness. That's what he's saying. Now, if you continue here, actually over to Isaiah chapter 26, Isaiah chapter 26, we see this exact same a word being used in Isaiah chapter 26. Verse 8. He says this in Isaiah 26 verse 8. He says, in the path of your judgments. God, you're judging. You're the one who has hidden yourself, as he says in our text. Lord, you've hidden yourself because of our sins. That's the judgment of God. You know, what, you know what the judgment of God is? Listen very carefully. The judgment of God is God hiding himself. When he says, you want unbelief? You want to live your life without me? You want to continue on in the path that you have mapped out for yourself? Go for it. That's the judgment of God. If there's anything believers pray, it's this. God, don't hide yourself. Don't hide. Don't hide. And the path of your judgments, O oh Lord, we wait for you. There it is again, that tension like a, like a rope. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you for when your judgments are in the earth the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness i'm going to keep waiting i'm going to keep waiting back to the text isaiah chapter 8 verse 18 behold i and the children whom the lord has given me are signs and portents portents there mean wonders or warnings and Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. What is he saying? He's saying that the believing people of that day have been put there as a sign. As warnings to unbelievers that there still is a God. That there are people who have experienced the true and living God who know him. Who continue on in faithfulness in the midst of the stretching, in the midst of the overwhelming darkness, they continue to persevere and they're put there as signs where God says, even though it's dark, I've put this person and I've put this person and I've put this person there as a sign that the true God is still there. He's still present. And if there's anything that we can get from that, it's that if you're a believer here in this unbelieving age, that you have been put in the midst of this culture as a sign. As a signpost, as a wonder, as a warning to those who unbelieve that there is still a God. The question is, have you really encountered him? Have you experienced him? 
And if you have encountered him, if you have truly experienced the Lord, then you're going to continue on in faith because you go, God, I know who you are. I've encountered you. I've experienced you. So we see their devotion. Verse 19, not only are these disciples devoted, but they're also discerning. Verse 19, and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? These who are following after God are looking around at the darkness and they're noticing that all these people, instead of following after the true God, they're, they're following mediums spiritualists, necromancers, those who have the ability, so to speak, to call up the dead. And the question is being asked, why will this people turn to the dead instead of the living God? How is it that people will turn to horoscopes and fortune tellers? How is it that they will turn to mediums how is it that they will go into people who will read their palms and look at cards and tea leaves in order to tell them their future and their destiny instead of looking to the true God? That's the question he's asking. He's discerning this. How is it possible that these people, when they have a true and living God right there, instead of following him and saying, God, you're the creator of everything, Lord, we bow before you and we ask you to wake us up then instead of doing that, they're turning to everything that is false. And even dead. I love how he says they, they chirp and they mutter. They go into these mediums, they go into these fortune tellers who use this kind of spiritual sounding language. They groan and they moan. They talk and talk. That sounds very spiritual. And Isaiah is saying it's all phony, and if it's not phony, it's demonic. It's all death. It's all death. How do they follow these things that are death instead of the God who it is gives life? Here's the answer from God, verse 20. To the teaching and to the testimony. You know what he's saying to Isaiah and his disciples? Go back to the word. That's what he's saying. Okay, back to the Bible is what he's saying. Back to the scripture. In the, in the midst of a culture that is saying, let's consult this person, let's consult that person, let's call Aunt Bertha, she's the one who knows, instead of calling on God, God says, how about let's go back to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to his word, it is because they have no dawn they have no light if you ask yourself why are people not seeking after God because they don't have light they've not been taught by God they've never heard him internally oh they might have heard the word preach but they have no light and the picture is of the sun that comes up they have no dawn they are simply dwelling in darkness there are those who have heard the external word of God, and then there are those who have actually internally heard the word of God. These are the ones who have been taught by God. 
And the ones who have been taught by God have light. And the ones who have not been taught by God simply dwell in the darkness and have no dawn. That's the picture that's being painted here. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. This is one who's been taught by God. That I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Those who have the dawn. Those who have the light. Good question to ask this morning here. Do you have the light? Can you say that you've been taught by God himself internally or have you just simply externally heard the word of God and are still dwelling in darkness? Or have you heard his voice calling out your name? Have you heard the teaching of God go deep into your soul? Have you felt it? Have you experienced it? That's the question. Have you believed it? John chapter 6, John chapter 6. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John John chapter 6, John chapter 6 verse, well, let's go back to verse 44, John chapter 6 verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. Here it is, verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. See it there? They've, they've been taught by who? By, by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, there it is, that teaching that comes from God. They've heard it. They've seen it. They've understand it, understood it. They've experienced it because they know God. But he's talking about a people who dwell in darkness, who have not received the light, who have no dawn. If you go back to Isaiah 8, these people who have no dawn, verse 21, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and against their God and turn their faces upward. You know what he's saying? He, he is, he's painting a picture here of utter darkness. He's saying these people who have God calling out to them, they have not listened, they've hardened their heart, they've said no to God, they have no dawn, that instead of recognizing that the source of their problems is rejection of God, you would think that at some point that they would turn, but instead of turning, it says that they walk through the land hungry and tired and worn out. And instead of recognizing the source of their problem, the scripture actually says they turn their face upward and they curse God. God, how could you have let me get in this situation? They're hungry. If you can just imagine in your mind a, a person walking through the desert absolutely parched. This pool of water is right there, but instead of drinking from the pool of water that's right there, they reject the pool of water. No, we will not have it. That's how irrational sin is. 
They go through and they, they curse their governmental officials, the kings and the governors and those who are in charge. Well, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have these problems. And all they do is murmur and curse and complain. And when they look at God, they blame him and they say, God, you're the one who made me like this. You're the one who put me in this situation. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be like that. That's why I'm not going to follow you. Can you hear the echo of people who do not care for God? They're blind. So they blame him. How could you have put me in this family situation that I grew up in? How could you have put me in this job? How could you have put me here? How have you put me here? It's not fair. Complain, complain, complain. Gripe, gripe, gripe. There's an inner bitterness, an inner anger against God. So instead of drinking from the pool of living water, they say, we'd, eat, we'd rather eat sand. That's what we want. We want sand. We're thirsty. Don't give us water. Give us hot sand. Their end is miserable, verse 22. And they will look to the earth but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. They're living in darkness, and they continue in darkness. And it's not God saying, I want you to be in darkness. I just love you being in darkness. It's that they would not turn. And listen to me carefully if you're sitting here this morning. You are responsible to turn to the living God. You're responsible. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as the children of Israel did. Blame God for my life. And I'll blame everybody else for my life. But I won't take responsibility for my life and I surely won't turn. And God says, those people who are in darkness continue to go into darkness forever. Matthew 22, Matthew 22, Matthew 22, verse 13. Matthew 22, verse... 13, says this. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Look at verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. Many have been called. Turn, turn, turn. Let me ask you this question this morning. And then we're going to close with two verses in the next chapter in Isaiah 9. Are you on a path to hell? That's the question. Listen to me. Listen very carefully. I want everyone's attention in here. If you are 
indifferent toward the things of God, if God's word is something that you go, I just, I just don't need this. You know, it's okay. I mean, I guess that's good for the religious kind of people, but I'm fine without it. If you can live without this word of God, you are in darkness. You say, well, I, I, can, I, can, I can go on without this word. I don't really need it. I'm, I'm okay without the Bible. I can, I can go to church, but I don't really need church. I don't need God's people. I don't need to be fed by the word of God. I really, I'm just okay in my life. Listen, you're in darkness. And the Bible would say to you, turn before it's too late because that darkness for those who never turn, those who never repent, those who never believe, those who never trust, it lasts forever. And this is why Jesus said they will be cast out into not just temporary darkness, but everlasting darkness, and hell will be people who eat sand forever. That's the picture. Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, look at this. Let me close with this. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. If you've been tormented over sin, if you've been perplexed and sad over darkness, your gloom will not last forever. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Notice this, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has the light shined. Into the darkness comes the light. And as we begin to look at Mark, this is what Mark is about. It's about a suffering servant who is the light who pierces the darkness as the only one who can dispel it. The Bible says very clearly that light has entered into the darkness. There is hope. And there's only hope in one man, and that's Jesus. That's Jesus. I'd like you to stand with me as we close here. Father, we ask you that as we now begin to contemplate the book of Mark in this wonderful historical account of Jesus Christ, the God-man who entered history. Lord, I pray for us. I pray for those who sat here and were indifferent this morning. God, there were some in this sanctuary this morning who were indifferent to your word. God, I pray that you'd bring repentance. For those who don't seem moved by the truth, God, I pray for all of us that those who are here, who God are, 
in love with the light. Lord, we're sinners. God, uh, but we're saved by your mercy. And God, we are excited about the fact that no matter the tension in life of how each believer in this room has been pulled, you're the one who's faithful. You're the one who does not change. We thank you for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Crystal and David.